0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom, and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Michael Robotham is renowned for creating complex page turners. In this session, recorded at the 2019 festival, he talks to Ailsa Piper about the characters and plot twists that bring his books to life. As you know, Michael's one of our biggest literary stars, and his wonderful crime novels have been translated into 23 languages. They've been turned into films in Germany and television. And um, he's won numerous awards, including the Crime Writers' Association Gold Dagger and the Ned Kelly Award for Best Novel on two occasions. And last year, I was in the room when he won the Arbia Award for um, the Best Book of the Year. And that was pretty exciting because it was kind of the first time Michael had been let out after a rather arduous experience. Um, Michael lives with his wife, Vivian, who I think might be out there, and they have three magnificent daughters. They live on the northern beaches in Sydney, and uh, he likes to sit out the back in his cabana of cruelty, which is the name that was given (laughs) to his workroom by his daughters, and dream up all his dark thoughts. So please make welcome, Michael (laughs) Robot. A year ago, Michael was meant to be here talking about this fabulous book but he didn't make it. And he's never missed uh, an appointment for work in his life, but it was a fairly fairly uh, surprising thing that happened. So I'm just gonna ask Michael to say to you why he didn't come last year.
1: Um, yeah, no, I had never committed to a writer's festival and not turned up, um, and I had quadruple heart bypass surgery. Um, I actually came out of hospital a year ago yesterday. Um, and so, uh, and I contacted Rosemary Milsom and said, I wrote, to her, I can't, I can't make it. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm having, I'm having. I think at that point it was triple bypass. It turned into four. Um, and she was sort of, she was, emo- she was stunned about how upset I was about not being able to make it up to Newcastle. And, uh, but no, I was very fortunate. It was very much a genetic thing. And, um, but it turned out I uh, was a walking time bomb. So I'm very, very fortunate to be. It's
0: here. a plot twist you didn't see coming, no. wasn't it? No. Um, but at that time you were sort of on the road talking about this book. And we're going to come back to it So um, later on because it's got a lead into the new book. So you're getting something very special today. You're going to get a bit of conversation about this, which actually is a real favourite of mine. We'll talk briefly about The Other Wife, which is the last in a series of books with a character called Joe O'Loughlin at the centre. I'm sure you don't need to know about Joe. And then the great treat in store is that Michael's actually going to talk about the book that's about to be released which is the beginning of a new series. And uh, he's, gonna just, he's agreed to give us a little reading from it, which I'm very excited about. He wouldn't even mail me the section to let me know what it is. So
1: That's, that's only because there just happens to be a character in this little reading, which... Um, who may be in the room? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so before we start talking books, though, I just thought it might be nice, because Michael's career has spanned journalism as well as ghostwriting and, of course, fiction. And I always love to know, where did that start? You know, that's an incredible array of writing. As a little boy, were you a bookworm? Um,
1: Look, no, not... Yes and no. I mean, I I hear a lot of writers talk about the fact that they read under their... You know, when their parents made them turn the light off, they'd have a torch and they'd read books under the covers and... uh, um, and I was, no, I was a pretty much a little kid who, who ran around and, and was sort of hyperactive and, and you couldn't pin me down for very long. But I, my father was an English history teacher and so we were always surrounded by books. We were read to, we always had library cards. We, um, so, I mean, uh, I loved reading and, and, and um, but I, I wasn't the sort of, I mean, I wasn't a bookworm as such, mm-hmm. I think. I was more um, a tear away, you know. I think they were quite happy when I, Stopped running around and had a book.
0: So were you a good boy or a naughty boy?
1: Um, Oh, I don't know. I mean, I got brought home by the, I grew up in Gundagai um, and I got brought home by the police one day. There was only one local policeman there who, and everyone, and the policeman knew every kid and who they belonged to. But myself and Mother Murray decided to (laughs) pretend to be blind and beg outside the Niagara cafe. (laughs) With signs around their necks saying, We are blind, and 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 so the local policeman brought us home. Um, You know, and (laughs) yeah, and you know, I once we once ran away and we jumped on a on a goods train and we were going to go to the big smoke and we got as far as Cootamundra on the train, (laughs) and we thought we must be in Sydney by now. (laughs) So and we were brought home again. So yeah, you know, I I I wasn't bad bad in terms Mm. of although I did. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> he nearly set fire to Gundagai, yeah, actually. I did. I, did, um, <laughs> I love it.
1: Yeah, I, I, did, I, did, I told this story at an event in Wagga Wagga, and it turned out a whole lot of people had traveled from Gundagai, and, they, and I could hear the intake of breath. I, I When I was about seven years old, um, stole matches and decided to light a little campfire in our back paddock. And there'd only been sort of six years of drought and the first, and it was a southerly blowing. <laughs> and the first house that it threatened, <laughs> my campfire, belonged to the head of the Gundagai Rural Fire Brigade. It took 15 brigades to bring this bushfire under control and it threatened the town. And thankfully, no houses were lost. Um, I raised the alarm and then crawled so far up under our house with the redbacks, and I thought I'm never coming out. Because I could hear them. I, I thought the town was burning down. Honestly, thought I'd, I'd burnt down the town, and my father put his head through the hatch and said, "Come out and take your punishment like a man." <laughs> I said, "I'm not a man. I'm just a boy." <laughs> um, and and I'd still be there today if it weren't for my mother's cooking. Um, but um, but I told that story, and and in Gundagai they remembered that fire, and they, <gasps> you know, and I had visions that there are posters up still of my face, you know, and wanted posters that I was the kid who. Gunnedah almost.
0: That's why you grew the beard.
1: <coughs> you know, oh. was distra- still, the, you know, the greatest, the most deadly flood in Australian history happened in Gunnedah. The reason it's built up on the hills above the the, um, the floodplain is it was the town used to be on the floodplain and got wiped out. And um, and and I was the second plague basically. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So where do you reckon your ideas then of kind of good and bad and I mean I, I hesitate to use the word evil, mm, yeah, but you know you're in way. the world of morality all the time in your writing and you were as a journalist too. Did that start early? That curiosity about what makes a person?
1: Yeah, I think it, d- it started um, in journalism really because growing up in, in small country towns, I mean I, I mean I mean crime was basically I mean no one ever locked a car or locked a house. Yeah. I mean crime was non-existent then. I mean everyone knew everyone and. Um, and uh, it was very much, you know, I came to work uh, at 17 to work on newspapers in Sydney, and I learned more in that first year about morality and crime. And I was covering the courts, and I was covering police rounds, and, you know, um, and there were so many times, I mean, so you see so many bodies. You see, you're there at times before the police arrive because you're monitoring police radios, and we were sort of ambulance chasers, in a sense, back in, th- back in those days, journalism, The bread and butter to give afternoon newspaper journalism were crime stories afternoon
0: newspaper that tells you something about the times doesn't it yeah Yeah. and
1: um and court stories and and crime stories and and there are a lot of i mean for a long while i couldn't understand where my fascination came from but then when i began looking back over over a long career it became it was it was the stories i covered back then Mm. you know and and there were uh, particular ones i mean I'll, I mean, so I'll try to truncate this story. One of the, one of the people that... Um, I was working nights for The Sun, only the only journalist who worked for the newspaper that night. The Mirror had another journalist working. They had a, an overnight journalist. His name was Mike Munro. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I got a phone call at 3 o'clock one night uh, from a man called Raymond John Denning. He was Australia's most wanted man. Uh, he'd been the first man to escape from Grafton Jail. He was a convicted killer. And He was on the run, and he was campaigning against police verbals and unsigned statements, beca- because in those days you could convict someone because you s- the police said they confessed in the police car on the way to the station; that would be enough, and or you know an unsigned statement again could get a conviction. Uh, and so he terrorised the police in a sense by pulling all these stunts to gain publicity for this campaign. He was doing film reviews for for Triple J. He appeared on 60 Minutes. Um, he, he went to a prisoner's art show and mingled with the Minister for Police and the Minister for Corrective Services, both of whom failed to recognise Australia's most wanted man.
0: He couldn't write it, actually.
1: He was in the public gallery at State Parliament listening to Question Time. <laughs> I mean, and it, it was the making of me as a young journalist, because I mean, he would ring me probably once or twice a week, and, uh, and he would always tip me off, never before the event, but straight away afterwards. So he got me... A lot of front page stories it was the making of me as a young 20 what year old what did he old.
0: like about you
1: i think i was the one i, w- a, I was the, the only journalist i mean he phoned up in the middle of the night right. i was the only journalist there for that newspaper and then we talked about i mean he talked about his life i mean he i mean he watched his mother being doused with petrol and satellite when he was a young boy you know uh, and now the official report is that she doused herself, whereas he claims that he saw his father oh. douse her. You know, so I mean, you know, he and he often talked about. It, I, he said, "I didn't go to prison a killer. He didn't actually. The man he killed was prison warder. He was so savagely abused in prison um, that he killed his abuser." Mm-hmm. And um, and so I felt there was an affinity there. But I, I go. I guess I've jumped to jump many many months later when he was finally caught. Um, I had to give evidence against him in a subsequent trial because he had committed crimes when he was on the run. And the first time I ever saw him face to face was in in a courtroom where I was in the witness box and he was in the dock. And I uh, this is a man over months and months I got to know through phone conversations, but I expected Australia's Most Wanted Man to look like Chopper Reid. But if I tell you that he was 21 and I was 20, And he looked so ordinary. And I think that was the moment for me, because I wanted to know what the sliding doors were that saw me in the witness box and Ray Denning in the dock. I mean, I'd obviously had a very idyllic childhood. He'd had a horrendous horrendous childhood. Mm. But I mean, that's when I became completely fascinated with, not so much the what happened uh, or the who and the when, but why.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting thing in the world of acting that they talk about, which is the given circumstances. Any good actor, the first thing they do is ask the given circumstances of a character, and it seems to me given circumstances are always what fires yeah. your books. You know, Yeah, what I, all the villains
1: have always been... I've never created someone who's bad for the sake of being bad. I've always given them a backstory. I mean, I firmly believe that society gets the monsters it deserves, um, you know, uh, because most most are created by you know horrendous sort of deprivation or family dysfunction or there's there's reasons you know Mm. very very rarely does someone just become bad
0: it's so tempting to kind of have that notion that something is pure evil it's a kind of a nice simple answer but the thing that's great about your books is that i think that nothing is that simple and you know i I mean it interests me how you go about thinking okay so i'm going to take someone who has to be a villain but i want people to really care about him because Michael's first book is called the suspect if you haven't read it because it goes back a while and you may not have I read it recently it's the first of the Joe O'Loughlin's. and the thing about that is you actually dare you, you make us care for everybody which is a wretched thing you know because there comes a point where you have to be on the side of good but actually yeah. it's a, that's quite a difficult thing I mean a, a, are you conscious of doing it or is it just I curiosity
1: think, I think one of the I mean one of the people that I w- was fortunate enough to as a ghostwriter work with is a man called Paul Britton. Mm. And he's a forensic psychologist. He he was the the real-life basis for the show Cracker. I'm sure many of you remember that amazing BBC series with Robbie Coltrane playing the character of Fitz. Um, And Paul Britton, one of the things... I mean, I did two books with Paul Britton and he is the pioneer of offender profiling in the UK.
0: So does everyone know what ghostwriting actually involves? to make sure
1: of that. Yeah, I mean it's about ca- I mean basically people can have had the most remarkable life but doesn't necessarily mean they have the ability to write about it. Um, and so most of the autobiographies you read are in some way either heavily edited or ghostwritten by someone even though it's their voice and a ghostwriter's job is to capture their voice perfectly to m- to look and feel and sound exactly like they do. And um, so in Paul Britton's case one of the things he taught me, like one of the cases he worked on was Fred and Rosemary West, The House of Horrors in Gloucester. But when they unpacked Fred West's history, I mean, that was, a, you know, what an horrendous couple they were, but there were three generations of incest running through Fred West's family. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fred West didn't just spring from nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess that doesn't forgive in any way, no. forgive what he did, it explains what he did, and that's why I guess with when I create my villains, I'm not trying to forgive them, But I am trying to explain why they do these things. They didn't.
0: It's a kind. I mean, it's an interesting reminder, isn't it? Because I do think that at the moment we're living in a bit of a world where people want things to be simplified, and there must be a temptation sometimes to kind of go all out and just create the monster. You know, I mean, that was the that's the thing that we want, in a way, to do is to box someone in. But yeah, yeah.
1: and I guess that's what most fairy tales were. They were Mm. just, you know, the villain was the villain. But I think. it's all about, I think, having worked with Paul Britton and also having ghost written for 15. I did 15 autobiographies for mm-hmm. the great and the good and the less good. Thank you, Rolf. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but I guess what you discover that we don't just have, you know, two or three layers of personality. We have so many layers, and we all have secrets. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have secrets we've never told another human being. You know, and uh, And I think that's what... um, And it's very hard in a newspaper article or, you know, something of 800 words to get get any of that nuance across. But when you write a book, you know, it becomes possible, or an autobiography, where you can actually start to explore those different layers.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's journalism in Australia. Then there was journalism internationally for some years. Then that morphed into ghostwriting. Including my favourite, which is that he actually captured the voice of Jerry Halliwell, which <laughs> I think is pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, so, what was the moment when you thought fiction? I mean, what, w- oh, look what it propelled it, it that?
1: It had always been. I mean, writing fiction at all. I mean, I became a journalist because I wanted to be ah. to be a writer. I mean, and look, I pol- I'm going to tell a quick story, but I apologise; people have heard it before. Um, I discovered the works of Ray Bradbury when I was a young, uh, probably 12. Um, 11 years old and I read all of Ray, he's a wonderful short story writer and also wrote Fahrenheit 451 and something in Wicked This Way Comes I devoured everything I could get from Bradbury this Is
0: before or after you set the fire?
1: This was all after, <laughs> no, the fire was still when I was, I think it was 6 or 7 this is when I was about <laughs> 11 I'd, I'd got a, you know, my brain had sort of connected a little bit by then and I, um, I wrote a letter to Bradbury and I addressed it to Ray Bradbury, Random House, New York that was it I don't recall putting a stamp on the envelope. I was living in Gundagai, and there were about three books that weren't available in Australia at that point of Ray Bradbury's. And I came home from primary school a few months later, and there on the kitchen table was a package, and inside were the three books that weren't available, and a letter from Ray Bradbury saying how thrilled he was to have this young reader on the far side of the world. Um, tremendously generous Amazing, gesture, yeah. and one of the and. Um, and I just quickly—I t- mean, several years ago, I wrote that story up in an American magazine, and it was republished on my publisher's website. And I call Ray Bradbury. I mean, Ray Bradbury once said that Charles—sorry—that uh, um, Jules Verne was his literary father, and Mary Shelley was his literary mother, huh. and Edgar Allan Poe was the bat wing cousin they kept locked in the attic. <laughs> and I said that Ray Bradbury was my literary father, and Steinbeck and Hemingway were my overachieving older brothers. <laughs> and um, the story appeared and a week later, Alexandra Bradbury, Ray Bradbury's youngest daughter, sent me an email. I had no idea that Ray was still alive. She said, my father's 91 years old and he is now completely blind. But I read him the story you wrote and I wanted you to know that you made an old man cry and he wanted you to know that you are his son.
0: Oh God. <laughs>
1: and, he, um, and I then arranged to send the audiobooks to Ray and the deal was that when I got to LA on my next tour, that we would have dinner or lunch together. The, the whole family wanted to come along. He died several weeks before I could get there. Mm. But the lovely thing is a massive outpouring of stories and people like Neil Gaiman and Steven Spielberg and Joanna Harris who wrote Chocolat. Mm-hmm. And all of these people talked about how Bradbury had inspired them or done something similar to help their careers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Obama, President Obama announced from the White House, because one of Ray Bradbury's most famous collections was the Martian Chronicles and Curiosity The martian rover had just landed on mars and so obama announced from the white house that the landing spot would forever be known as bradbury's landing which i thought he would have been so thrilled yeah
0: wow that's a beautiful story i mean that collegiate world of writers is when it works is so beautiful i I observed michael um giving advice to a, a young new writer a few months back and the mind snapping across somebody else's work. It was not just sharp, it was generous, you know, and it's, it, I mean, it means an enormous amount, but it isn't, I don't know, it isn't easy to do when you're putting out a book a year, which is what Michael does. Extraordinarily, a book a year is... Even normal. after quadruple half, I Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So I'm mindful that we want to talk specifically about books because I'm desperate to hear a little bit of the third one. So I just want to step through, because you missed out on hearing about this marvellous book, The Secrets She Keeps. This book really interests me because it's told in the first person from two characters, both of them women. Now there's been a lot of stuff recently about how dare a white privileged man write in the voice of a woman. Michael doesn't just write in the voice of one, he writes in both, and they're sensational. I'm
1: completely mad, aren't I?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's getting harder, isn't it? You've yeah. found recently that you know that your editors are asking you to be more careful about even yeah. making descriptions.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting. I think in the in the in the book that's coming, yeah, I, you know, I'm suddenly getting pulled up on. I mean, I describe all my characters. I describe them physically and what they're wearing, male and female. But there seems to be this thing of wanting to take out all descriptions of women and what they're wearing and whether they're tall or thin or blonde or. And fine with the men, you can describe men any way you want to, but not the women. And I think, well, is that really where we, we've reached the point where, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not that I've, we're talking about descriptions where I'm describing someone having, having heaving bosoms or, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that I'm sort of, it's, um, but yeah, I worry a little bit about it. It's a bit like, you know, where you, d- you want to portray a racist character, but you can't have them saying anything racist, you think, well, how do you portray a racist mm-hmm. character if they can't do or say anything that's a racist act? Mm-hmm. You know, and, um and I think that we're in danger sometimes of, of uh, with this, you know, I guess political correctness. And I'm all in favour of, of most of it. But we're yeah. in danger when it comes to to writing fiction that we could a- have a very bland product.
0: Yeah. Well, Shakespeare wouldn't exist if that mm. were the case. Um, so, I, you know, I'm terribly admiring of this book for that reason. But also, I'm admiring of it because, as someone who, uh, you know, was once an actor, I recognise that these two characters are full and fleshed and nuanced and layered and, you know, I- they're, they're total rounded women, although one of them is perhaps hexagonal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not physically. but, um, but uh, so I- and, and interestingly, it's going to be turned into a series quite soon. Any moment now, they're going to announce the casting for it. And it's going to be in Australia, which is nice because you write most of your books. In fact, all of your books set in England. And I forget that, but, you know, you're our great Australian writer. How come?
1: Oh, many, many, many years ago, when I was working in London, you know, um, I wrote the greatest ever unpublished Australian novel. um, (laughs) And uh, it was almost published by... It was set in a small fishing um, town on the Australian coast. And it was almost published by Penguin in the UK. I missed out by a single vote in in the final publishing meeting. And... um, this is in the mid-80s, and they said afterwards that if I had set that book in England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales, they would have published it in a heartbeat. But because it was set in Australia, it was just too hard to sell. And you've got to remember, back in the 80s, you know, the British would read British fiction and the Americans would read American fiction and the Australians would read whatever the British and the American would send us. You know, We didn't really have that vibrant uh, local publishing industry. Mm-hmm. We had some great writers. but you know, um and, and I guess when I sat down to write uh, another novel, that was in the back of my mind, so I, I wrote The Suspect, or the first 114 pages, which triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair, and was translated into 21 languages, or sold into 21 languages in three hours. And my life changed. Now, that, that novel now, I mean, publishers are falling over themselves, to so say, can we have that, that Australian novel? You know, but while it stays in the bottom drawer, it is still the greatest ever unpublished <laughs> Australian Should I pull it out, then who knows?
0: <laughs> and also, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you wrote The Suspect, that first one, mm. set in England, so you've written all the other Joe books. I suppose Joe couldn't have emigrated to Australia, No, really, I did have, I have I mean, people say to thing. me,
1: I, I had Australian <laughs> re- readers saying to me, why don't you bring him... They, I mean, they sent me suggestions saying, look, his daughter Charlie could have a gap here in Australia <laughs> and he could come out here, you know? <laughs> um, No, I will set a book in Australia, I will. I Mm. mean, it's um, at some point, but um, yeah, it was just happenstance, really.
0: Well, this one is set in suburban London, and for me, one of the great pleasures of it is that I feel like I am entering another world, but a world that is familiar, and I think that's a very difficult thing to do. So, you know, you're writing for readers there who know the world very specifically, but for people like me who don't. And character types. We don't have class differences in quite the same way in Australia, and these two women... Are very very different. They've got very different circumstances, and they both have big secrets. The secrets she keeps, um, and beyond that, you know, I can't sort of say very much except that uh, the intersection of them is so surprising. And where Michael did the research for <laughs> this book, um, you w- once you've read it, you too will want to go online and find out where. He, can I say what can I say? Well, you can say.
1: It's about two women, both of whom, bo- as you say, different side of the track, both of whom are pregnant, both whose babies are due at, at the, the same, same time, and mm-hmm. their lives are going to collide yeah. in um, the yeah. most horrendous of ways, really. Um, and, and basically, you both have secrets, and you're never quite sure who's reliable as a narrator, because both, both their voices are there, who's reliable and who isn't.
0: And the opening line of this book is one of my favourite opening lines of all time. So it's Agatha who is the sort of girl from the tougher background and she just, it's, the book opens with the words I am not the most important person in this story. And immediately, for me, that sets up, is she telling the truth or not? But also, what does that mean about someone who puts them down that much? And everything? How, how much do you sweat over an opening sentence?
1: Oh, I love openings. I love opening lines. Um, and I I rewrite them a lot, uh, um, and I guess I, I remember great openings. But it's it's I think now no, it's funny. I mean, uh, I mean a lot of people I'm here. I'm assuming they love sort of crime fiction and crime writing. And, and traditionally, when you look at people like P. D. James, I mean the classic sort of, mm. you know Ruth Rendell, you know they would often, or even Agatha Christie, they they would often write, and you'd go 200 pages before you discovered who was going to die, you know. And in this day and age, with the, the immediacy we have and with, the, with streaming services and just, I mean, all the possible... I mean, every TV show we've never seen or radio show we've never listened to, it's all available to us now. You have to grab your reader very quickly. You have to... You, and, and you have to hold them. And so I think opening lines become incredibly important to grab the reader. And also, if you're going to write in the first person, you have to establish the voice very quickly, you know. Um, and I always remember it's... It's so like the Joe. I remember the moment with Joe Lachlan, you know, you know, the psychologist character in, in a lot of my books. Is uh, I gave him early onset Parkinson's in that first book, but the line that I knew I wrote, that I knew that I had his voice, was when um, he says, "When I wake up every morning, I know what sort of day I'm going to have if I can bend down and tie my shoes." Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. me, that had that wonderful self-deprecating sense of you know um, then pathos is also so much in that line that i thought that's his voice yeah i have it now that's his voice yeah
0: which must in some part have come from all the ghostwriting too listening to people's voices yeah it's like it's like i mean i
1: for example you know you'd live with someone like lulu or jerry halliwell for for six or seven weeks and you'd you'd interview them and you'd transcribe those tapes but the moment of truth always came is when you wrote a line and you suddenly knew that you had their voice and, and all of them are different, each of these people. And I, I, I joke that, you know, once you have the voice, how do you get rid of it? You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I could have written War and Peace and made it sound like Jerry halliwell <laughs> um, Not a book with a huge market. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's then a case of having to get rid of that voice to find a new voice. You know. But at least the advantage of ghostwriting, I got to look at the world through a new set of eyes every 12 months or every eight months. You know, and each of these people was so unique; they all had a different voice, and so it's incredible. It's one of the reasons I write so much in first person. It's you know have that you know a decade of having done that mm. through ghostwriting.
0: Um, one of the the moments in this book that I particularly love is a line about secrets. So it's all about secrets, and it's it's interesting because this book is as much a Will it be done as why? You know, I mean, it really... You follow so deeply inside the minds of the characters. But there's a fabulous line. The value of a secret depends upon whom you're trying to keep it from. You may think it's worth a lot. I may think it's worthless. Someone always has to pay. That idea that a secret depends on the person who you're know who you hiding it from mm-hmm. is completely new to me. I had never put that together. Now... A line like that—does it just come, or are you sweating over that? Because that's kind of philosophy as well as yeah. Crime. I think it,
1: it. I mean, it just comes, and you can't. You know, it's a bit like you know, someone like Kathy Lett puns every line, and it gets to the point when you when you listen to Kathy or you read her, there are so many puns that one gets it lost in the next one. Whereas it's, I think, it's much better if the pun or the clever line comes just every so often, and it has greater impact. And so if, if you tried to write this absolute killer line in every paragraph, I mean, A, I think it would be you'd have to be a genius, but B, th- it wouldn't read very well. It is too rich. You know, I mean, I,
0: I have a theory about your books too, because they have this incredible forward momentum. They keep you wanting to move forward, move forward, and in a way you need a line like that to go, OK, now just take a breath. You know, like that line actually makes me stop as a reader and think, oh, wow. But also that's quite good because otherwise you gobble. I gobble your books. <laughs> now, in this book, which we can't talk too much about, there is a character who appears who's called Cyrus, Cyrus Haven. And uh, he is a psychologist and he's brought in for reasons that you, some of you may know. Um, and I just read the book and enjoyed him and I particularly enjoyed the reflection that Megan, one of the characters, makes about him. She says, Cyrus reminds me of the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. He's not so much broken as in need of oil. Something has happened in his life that weighs down his steps and makes his movements creak and groan. Maybe that's the fate of someone who spends his life delving into other people's minds, listening to their worst fears, unmasking their flaws and discovering their motives. Maybe a man like that begins to rust or seize up, haunted by too many ghosts in the machine it's a beautiful description from a sort of patient if you want or a person who's being observed of the observer and I just admired it at the time but then I found out that Cyrus is going to be the hero of the new series of books he's going to take over from Joe O'Loughlin and he's gonna have his suite of books so when did you know that Cyrus was gonna have his own sort of
1: Um, Well, I I mean just to explain with a Joe that I mentioned, because I mean, I'm sure not everyone here will know, I mean, he's a psychologist, and I gave him 14 years ago, or well 15 years ago, early onset Parkinson's. Now, anyone that knows anything about Parkinson's knows that I've aged Joe in real time, his disease has progressed. Physically, he can't do. I cannot keep, I, I created unwittingly, because I had no idea I was going to write a series with Joe when I wrote the first book. I, you know, I was going to be happy to have one book published and my mother to buy six of the eight <laughs> copies that were sold. Um, so you know i can't physically keep joe going and and um and hence the fact that you know the the other wife is the last of the joe series i'm not saying that he won't in some way appear somewhere down the track i mean he gets a a little mention in the new book just in passing um and uh, also
0: can i say in this the last one that michael's talking about it only dawned on me yesterday that joe's daughter Charlie. For those of you who n- remember, Joe has a daughter called Charlie. She's studying to be a cl- clinical psychologist in this one. So yeah. my theory is that we could have a Charlie series with Joe just sort of there yeah, on the maybe, phone.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um, I mean, that's always a possibility. But in the sense, I guess, so Cyrus came about because I suddenly, you know, that, look, I can tell you really interestingly. This sounds so venal and <laughs> commercial. But when I wrote The Secret She Keeps, the psychologist in it, because that doesn't have a huge role, was Joe O'Loughlin. And my agent said to me, do you know the Joe O'Loughlin film rights and TV rights have already been sold? If you put another psychologist in there, we can sell it to someone else.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in doing that, um, he's absolutely right. So, so I, I, I thought, well, that's an opportunity to introduce a. You know, a different psychologist into this, a younger psychologist. He's handsome and yeah, and, and also but bit of blue eyes that are uh, piercing, dark in the middle. And, I and, <laughs> and uh, God, you cast him already. Um, <laughs> the um, yeah, so it was a bit unwitting in that sense. But then I said, "Oh, this is a great opportunity to start a new series. You know, start with someone, yeah. someone new." Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, tell us.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna read you a little bit about. I mean, Megan mentioned so in that it called? in that book. It's called Good Girl, Bad Girl. Um, and Megan mentioned the observation of Cyrus that he seemed somehow broken or weighed down. And um, so this is Cyrus. That night I dreamed the dream. My mother was the first to die while cooking saffron chicken and prawn paella with peas. My mother with a wicked laugh, a soft spot for underdogs, a hatred of hypocrisy, her love for schoolteachers, dark chocolate and Bailey's Irish cream. Mm-hmm. My mother- The
0: director in me is gonna just say something. Could you slow down a tad? <laughs>
1: My mother with a posh phone voice and pink lipstick and potpourri-smelling lingerie drawer, her bubble baths behind a locked door and no children allowed. (laughs) My mother, who grew up on a farm and had a pony called Twelve because it was twelve hands high, yet who refused to let us have a dog because she still mourned the loss of her own beloved childhood pet, a boxer called Sinbad. On that night, she was standing in front of the freezer with a bag of frozen peas in her hand, when the knife sighed through her carotid arteries, spilling green and red onto the white tile floor. She had always complained about choosing white tiles because they showed every spill, crumb and drop pea. The plume of blood sprayed in an arc across the kitchen bench and the sink and the cutlery drawer. The blood stretched all the way to the cat food bowl in the corner where Tibbles would later to lick it into a smear and track it across the floor with her paws. My father was next. Dad, who worked in property management, a fancy way of saying he collected rents. My father, who taught Elias how to drive and would get him to practice his parking outside a succession of pubs, whereupon Dad slipped inside for a quick half, the white Lion, the last post, the beekeeper and the commercial inn. Later, Dad would fall asleep on the sofa snoring through midsummer murders. My father, who brewed his own beer, collected vinyl LPs and once scored a golfing hole in one that ran all the way along the ground, but he still framed the scorecard. My father, who didn't like using the word hate, but instead said he disliked racist reality TV shows, Manchester United, pistachios that don't open, and people who spend 15 minutes in a queue and don't know what to order when they get to the counter. <laughs> Dad died on his hands and knees, crouched in front of the DVD player, because one of the twins had managed to get a disc stuck in the machine. The knife severed his spine, paralysing from the waist down. He managed to roll onto his back and hold up his arm, trying to ward off the blows losing his right thumb, which rolled under the TV cabinet. My twin sisters were doing their homework or playing in the bedroom, they shared. They must have known something was wrong because they locked the door and barricaded with bean bags and soft toys and a rocking horse that belonged to my grandmother and had no hair on its mane. April was the eldest by 20 minutes and always acted like an older sister. Ernest and Bossy, she was the hoarder, the show-off, the baker of cupcakes, partial to strawberry lip gloss and jelly snakes, and able to name every king and queen of England using a rhyme she'd learned off by heart. Esme was different, but the same. Part of a collective child, or two halves with the same face, each slightly different, but in symmetry. Esme, the shy, the meek, the songbird, with the dancer's grace and tiny feet. Esme, the peacemaker, the advocate, the knitter. Esme, who pressed flowers in the pages of a diary and gave names to every animal she ever met. April fell first which followed the natural order of how the twins handled everything. She ran towards Elias and the knife entered her ribs and came out near her spine. Esme tried to crawl beneath her bed but was dragged out by her ankles, scratching at the floor and bunching the rug under her body. I try not to imagine her fear, or the sound of metal on air, or metal on flesh, or the silence that followed. People always ask, where was I? Her football practice, or on my way home? Mum had told me to be home by six. She also told me not to even think about stopping for hot chips. Of course, I didn't listen. I hadn't eaten since lunchtime at school, and the fat fryer did a cone of chips for a quid, although I had to forgo the vinegar or Mum would smell it on my breath. I scoffed the chips and said I had time to ride past Ailsa Piper's house, <laughs> in the hope I might glimpse her in the garden or coming home from netball practice. Elsa was a year older than me, and I once helped her find a bracelet that she lost on her way to school. We hadn't spoken since then, but she always smiled when we bumped into each other, happenstances that I tried to orchestrate as often as possible. Running late, I had to stand on my pedals and push hard to make it home by six. I wheeled my bike through the side gate and rested it up against the shed. Then I took off my muddy football boots and banged them against the back step. I could hear canned TV laughter coming from the front room as I opened the back door. I called out to mum, she didn't answer. In my nightmares this is where I wake, as I step into the kitchen seeing the smear of blood near the litter box. I don't wake screaming or bolt upright in my bed, but my cheeks are sometimes wet and my voice hoarse. That's when I get up, that's when I run.
0: Do to you to write something like that? I mean, that's a am- that's an amazing sequence, the beautiful observation, but the darkness of it. What does it yeah.
1: do? I guess I mean, it's an important scene because that explains Cyrus in his sort of motivation, why he became, why he became a psychologist. Yeah. you know, um, and it gives you, I mean, it dovetails a little with that seeing the other wife. He's a damaged man, you know, and he's become a psychologist to try to understand why that happened to his family. He's mm-hmm. the sort of boy who survived. And, um, and they're powerful scenes to write those, you know. I mean, I, mm. But I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't plot my books in advance, so I, I, I cry when I get to the end of it. If, I, if people say they made, you know, I made them cry at the end of a book, I mean, I've made myself cry when I've been writing it. And not just writing it, when I rewrite it, when I rewrite it, I'll cry over and over again. You know.
0: So writing that, you know, because I mean, listening to it is just so affecting, isn't it? It's, and Michael said to me, oh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to read. Um, and I have to say, I think about you writing it. And I just think, what's that like to write that picture? Mm. What happens to you?
1: I think you just, um, I mean, you're, you know, you're an actor. You understand, you know, you talk about, you put yourself into, putting yourself into character. Now. And i was amazed, I mean, come away from a performance when I see so much emotion and I think, how do those people wind down? How do they walk off that stage having played that role? And how do they go home and do they, how do they unwind and sleep and, you have, and tomorrow they're going to come out and do it again and again and again?
0: I, I have a theory though that it's different and I think you're deflecting the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it is different because as an actor you live it out and you, it gets out of your body but you're there at your desk and I know you play golf and I know <laughs> you do but, but you know, then you walk into your home with your wife and your beautiful girls and you're so, like you don't have a, a backstory full of darkness or anything. No. So it completely comes so does it ever leave a a residue or do you feel like you write it out i
1: wrote a book called shatter which is one of the darkest books i've ever written and and i created for, for, for the first time a voice of the villain in that and i remember disturbing myself i remember um i remember writing the scenes with him and this was a man who used to convince women that he'd kidnapped their child, even though their child was perfectly safe at school, he would convince them. And he, he would mentally destroy these women because he knew enough detail about their children to convince them that he had them. Um, and I remember writing those scenes and coming in and taking a scalding hot shower and curling up in bed and wanting that voice to get out of my head. That I found disturbing. Mm. That Writing from that point of view, I found incredibly disturbing. Writing from the point of view of, of someone like Cyrus, and coming coming from that sort of um, trauma, that wasn't so well. I mean, it was not say so difficult, but it was sort of you know, it's a it's a scene I, r- I think is one of the best you know written scenes in the in the book. You it's know,
0: beautiful. Um, I mean, the the layers of detail. That's why mm. I wanted to just slow down. <laughs> there's just, there's such beautifully observed tiny tiny mm. moments of a person's life or habits and ticks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Right. Um. So that comes out in. July the 23rd. Um, it can pre
1: available for pre-order now. <laughs> My publishers are in the room, i better mention that.
0: But in the meantime, of course, just, just to backtrack, there is The Other Wife, which, you know, having talked about Joe, even if you haven't read the others, this book is beautiful because Cyrus is taking us. as he's, he's new and I imagine there must be a kind of a thrill about a new character to play. Yeah, with.
1: I think people ask, you know, why move on? I mean, it wasn't just that Joe, his disease had progressed. I mean, writing from the first person point of view of a character is like spending a, a year in a two-man tent with your very, very best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you're inside their head for that amount of time. And, and it doesn't matter how good a friend they are after that year, you want a break from them. And, and hence the fact, you know, I, I used to write standalones like Life or Death or The She Keeps to give myself a break to do something new. So it's very exciting to do a new, to come up with a new character and to you know, um, daunting, a bit scary, you know, because I know readers love, they love series. It's like, you know, you know when you pick up a Joe <coughs> Lachlan book, you know, you know, you know you're know, you with an old friend yeah. and, and um, there's a comfort factor in that. You want to know what's happening in his life. And I love the way readers think that these characters, you know, that I live next door to Joe um, and, you know, they're, you know, I have... People asking me, you know, how's Charlie doing at university, <laughs> and they're doing all sorts of, You know, f- the famous one was at the very end of *The Suspect*, the first book. Joe's um, wife, Julianne, uh, is pregnant, and I didn't write, I didn't intend Joe to be ever appear again. But people would come up to me and say, "Did Julianne have a boy or a girl?" and I, yeah. and I'd say, "I don't know." And they said, "But surely she's had the baby by now." <laughs> you know. And I think, you know, I think that's. Wonderful that people, th- you know, th- that's how mm. real that you've made the character mm. that people think that they exist. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, there's just a little technical thing I wanted to ask. Th- this book ends, and I, obviously not spoilers, but it ends with Joe sending a text message mm. to someone. And one of the things that fascinates me that you manage, which I think must be really hard now, is you manage to incorporate technology really well. But I imagine that, you know, mobile phones and... The constant sort of availability yeah. of people must make it really hard for plotting, because you know I've read a couple of crime books recently, and they've set them back in the eighties, and I understand why, because in the eighties someone could get lost, someone could go yeah. missing, but they can't go missing can they?
1: It's it's funny. I was having a conversation with Ian Ian Rank, and I mean uh, I interviewed Ian when he came into to Sydney last time and on stage, and and I went back and read the very first Rebus novel, and and. Um, I mean, there was a fax machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was it. You know, there were and, no and
0: the suspect. You know, another and um,
1: time yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you look. I wrote the suspect, and it was it was a contemporary, cutting-edge crime novel. And now it's an historic novel. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, and you know, I think that's one of the great issues of technology. And there's only so often you can. You know, it's y- you can't have someone's mobile phone run out of juice. You know, <laughs> or you know, accidentally drop it. I mean, it, it becomes a difficult thing because people can be tracked so mm-hmm. readily now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, g- I think, um, I felt more sorry for people that there are certain writers that used to rely heavily on forensics and, and, and the latest developments in that and then shows like CSI would, would come out and, you know, within months have all the new technology, you know, there on screen and so you couldn't sort of wow people with the, the, all your research anymore. Um, and I think that's why I, I, I don't rely, I re- my plots rely more on, on the personalities and, the, and suspense rather than you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of an investigation or what happened, it relies on mm. the personalities and yeah. the characters.
0: That's the most amazing character description that you've just read. Um, I'm gonna throw to questions. I'm sorry, I've probably had more than my share, share of time. We have a microphone, um, so if you've got a question, pop your hand up and we'll get the mic to you. Um, I just want to, while the mic's getting to someone, yes? Someone's
1: gotta put a hand up.
0: Someone pop a hand up. Um, I wanted to ask you about detachment because there's a detachment required. Write that sort of material, and it seems to me that it's kind of like the detachment of looking at a body in a way like you know, that thing of dissecting a body. Um. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever no, see it's that funny, feel? I, I,
1: it's the opposite. I, I feel it's more like crawling inside mm. <laughs> rather than yeah, not yeah. the body. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's more about it's a bit like you know, the classic thing was, um, yeah, this is a thing Paul Britton used to do, and it's a thing that. Joe Lachlan did in in real life, sorry, um, Paul Britton did in real life, um, a psychologist coming to a scene would have to walk through the mind of the victim, look at the world through the victim's eyes, okay, when the victim met their attacker on that lonely footpath, learn about the victim. Is she the sort of person that will fight? Will she look up and smile at someone on a footpath or will she drop her head? I mean, how will she react? Because how she reacts will tell you something about the person who did this, because you don't know the person who did it. They're, they're they're the empty picture frame. And then it's the psychologist will eventually, having discovered every, all the psychological clues, will then walk through the mind of the of the perpetrator. What did they see? What were they looking for? You know, uh, what's their background? You know, where did they come from? What built them? And so, I do. I do more of that. I think I try to get inside the, the, the skin of, of mm. the person I'm writing for and think how would they look at the world, mm. yeah, rather than being detached. Rather than
0: sitting there. Yeah. Well, damn fine. Um, yes, we've got a question up there. Um, I was just wondering if um, all of us out here are your cast of thousands or millions or if your cast lives inside your head. Uh-huh. So are you taking from real life? Oh or no, very. Or are you m- making it up as you go along?
1: No, very much taking real life. I mean, all my stories have been seated in. Um, I say seated not inspired. I don't like to think anything inspires someone to write a terrible <laughs> about terrible crimes, but uh, in real life events and. Um, uh, and you know, even you know, when I used to do a lot of writing in cafes, and if I needed a character description, I would simply raise my eyes up and look around <laughs> and, and see someone walking, yeah, I like that, you know, and uh, yeah, that's good, and, and so I will, um, you know, hence the fact that Alsa's <laughs> in my new book. Yeah. I will, it's really interesting, I have got the most, in, in the book I'm writing now, which will come out next year, I have got the most evil, evil pedophile who I'm calling Fraser Anning. <laughs> <laughs> Not based on yeah. anyone, of course, not based on anyone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> when Michael mentioned in passing that he was going to name a character after me, I was so frightened I'd get killed off. I was so <laughs> relieved not to be killed off. <laughs> anyone else? You um, mentioned previously that you don't plot out your books in advance. So how does that process work? Do you start with a character and see what happens? Sure.
1: Yeah, I start with a, um, it could be a premise. I like the life or death, the book, the one, the, the gold dagger. Um, That was the two paragraphs that I read in a newspaper in 1985 um, uh, about a man who escapes from jail the day before he's due to be released, which just intrigued me. Why would someone escape from prison the day before they're due to be released? And I cut that out and I held onto it for nearly 20 years, trying to think of a reason. And then I opened it up. I created the character of Audie Palmer and said, OK, I'm going to open this up with him escaping from prison the day before he's due to be released and I'm just going to let it run <laughs> 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 and um, and you know it's it's a really exciting organic way of writing I don't recommend it for everyone I mean because you know it's a really fright it's like riding without a net you know it being a trapeze artist and times you let go and you swing out and you hope something sw- is swinging towards you that you can grab hold of otherwise it's going to hurt when you land um, and but it's when I come in from my cabana of cruelty and I say to my wife, you would not believe what just happened. <laughs> you know, um, I figure if I don't see it coming, then the reader won't see it coming. It's a really, you know, but, it, but hence the fact, I also, it's an emotional roller coaster because when my characters are literally hanging by their fingertips from the cliff, I am hanging there with them, not knowing, you know, necessarily how I'm gonna save them. I mean, I do know probably by two thirds of the way through, I'm getting towards an idea where I will know you know how it's going to end. I won't quite know how to get there, but I, but I'll I'll start seeing markers ahead of me, you know, uh, to help me c- stay in the right direction.
0: It's incredible to me that I cannot fathom it because plotting is the hardest thing for most people.
1: I hate it. I hate plotting. You yeah. know, to me, I I love writing scenes like the one I've just written. I love writing about characters and relationships and all of that. But the idea that you people are all so incredibly clever. You've read so many books. You've seen so many TV shows. You you know that there the twists, you know there's going to have to be a second twist because the first twist, you know there's probably going to have to be a third twist you know, and, you, and this whole idea that you're constantly trying to be this magician and planting clues with your left hand while making people look at your right hand that sleight of hand mm-hmm. does my head in and it's funny because people say but, you, but you're so good at it Michael I'm saying well I don't know whether I am but I, it, it's what I, I despair of most of all if someone else could come up with a plot and just let me write the characters <laughs> and all that, I would love that
0: Well, it won't be me. Um, (laughs) Anybody else? I thought I saw a hand. Yes, there's a hand down here. Momentum's the other thing about that too, because you know they they really hold. You know, but it's really
1: funny, and this goes back to not knowing, not plotting in advance. Because in my, because I don't know what's happening in advance. If I have to to move someone from point A to point B, you know, uh, you know the the plot, you know, the, the right, the next. That scene could take me three or four days to write. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my god, this book is so slow. It has taken them three days to get, <laughs> <laughs> to get, to get there. Whereas in fact, when people read it, they'll read that in sort of 10 minutes. And, and so when I finally read the book, I think it's got tremendous pace and momentum. But when I'm writing it, I'm thinking, oh god, this is so
0: slow.
1: Something's <laughs> got to happen soon. You know, no one's going to be willing to stick with this. Um, but I think that's the nature of writing the way I do. And it's only afterwards, when you sit back, you think, no, there is a momentum there.
0: Mm. Hi, sorry, my question uh, is, if you're writing uh, with this new book um, from the perspective of a psychologist, do you have someone in that industry that you put it in front of to see that... uh, I'm assuming you don't have a psychology degree, and so do you have some professional that you run it by just to Um, make sure that it's...
1: No, not... Mainly because my background, I mentioned Paul Britton. And having done two books with Paul Britton, you know, and he, um, and in the man's a genius, uh, and um, and I guess, you know, I did the first novel is Jigsaw, Ma- not novel, it was a non-fiction book about his work with a place called the Jigsaw Man, and he worked on ca- cases like Jamie Bolger and Fred and Rosemary West, and and a lot of my knowledge of criminal psychology comes from having done two books with him, because he spent most of his career working in places like Broadmoor and rampton with with the criminally insane deciding whether they should ever ever be released oh look i tell you and it's a go-to story people will have heard it before if they've heard me speak but paul britton has got the most amazing mind of anyone i've ever met he would look at each and every one of you and what you're wearing and the way you're groomed and where you've chosen to sit today and he would know far more about you than you ever wanted a stranger to know (laughs) Now, most psychologists, they get called into crime scenes when the crimes are beyond the comprehension of the police. They are so off the scale of normal human behaviour, the police need someone to explain to them why one human being would do that to another human being. So he was called into 74 Cromwell Street in Gloucester when three bodies were discovered in the back garden um, beneath the patio, one of which was believed to be the daughter of the couple who owned the property, who were Fred and Rosemary West. They were denying all knowledge. So Paul Britton walked through the garden. He saw the way these bodies had been left and they had died slowly and painfully. And He walked through the house and he went to the police station and he watched Fred and Rosemary West denying all involvement. And then he sat down with the senior detective and he said, right, you are dealing with serial sexual psychopaths. This is how they meet, this is how they combine. And he listed point by point by point a profile of them. And the very last point he made was they bury their bodies close because they like to fantasize about what they've done. At which point John Bennett, the detective, said, Okay, so that's why they've used the garden and Paul Britton said, No, they've used the garden because the house is full. <laughs> and they dug up the basement of the house and found seven bodies in the basement. Now I never have never written a book about people being tortured or that I don't I'm not interested in serial killer and that sort of torture or sort of But I was fascinated with how Paul Britton knew that, what sort of person knows that. And when I created the character of Joe O'Loughlin and Cyrus Haven as well, it's people that have that sort of understanding of human behaviour. And I guess having worked with Paul over sort of three or four years on a lot of different cases, both clinical and criminal, that's where my knowledge comes from. And I can always go back to Paul and ask him questions. So I guess the answer is yes, there is someone who I can ask. But a lot of it I sort of just know now having having done so much work on it. Hmm. Sorry, that's already down a story.
0: <laughs> no, but it is <laughs> extraordinary. Anyone else? Yes, up, up there in the centre. Can we get a mic there?
1: Just behind you. There's a mic coming. There's a
0: mic coming from behind oh. you. There we are.
1: Would you like to share with us some of your favorite opening lines first <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <those laughs> i do remember with um, really like. <laughs> oh god it's hard isn't it because I, I like i remember my own, obviously i do remember i think in a book called lost i sort of it opens with a line you know when it's cold when your lawyer has his hands in his own pockets <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um i think that was one and i do remember i'm a huge fan of john irving and i remember uh, there's an opening line in the prayer for Owen Meany where he talks about, you know, I am destined to remember a boy with a cracked voice, who killed my mother when he hit a foul ball, you know, um, or whatever. and it was just it was sort of like it's such an intriguing opening line. You think I have to read, I have to read on.
0: Mm. Well, we unfortunately are going to have time only for one more question. I'm sorry. Is there someone who's got one more burning question? Because if not, I have. I'll take it. <laughs> Yes, Mike's just Just coming coming down. down. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretty loud. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm reading your books and I'm reading those haunting scenes, the characters that you create, like Joe, I feel a sense of comfort when, say, the chapter closes and I can come back to Joe. Do you feel that, like, when you're writing a book, like you go and you write those haunting scenes but you come back to Joe and it's almost like, oh...
1: It's, it's funny i feel several things one um uh it's interesting joe is a man who can't say no uh, and so you know he's you know his, his beloved the woman he loved most in his life would always tell him why can't you be the person that runs in the opposite direction yelling for help why are you the person that always charges into the fire you know um and, and I know a lot of people always talk to me, they're pleased in the story when Vincent Ruiz, who's sort of the ex-detective comes in, because they always think, Joe has got to get himself in big trouble here, but Vincent's going to be there, and Vincent's going to have his back. Um, and I guess um, I'm a bit the same. I like when I can bring Vincent into the story. You know. um, I find with Joe, I think what I love about Joe is, Joe is a sort of character that readers are willing to go into dark places, and I don't, as I mentioned, go into dark places like serial killer places, but there's still pretty dark psychological sort of books, some of these. But Joe is the sort of person that you trust, that he'll take you into this dark place, but he'll lead you out again. He's not gonna leave you trapped in this thing where you're gonna be not just haunted by this book, but traumatized by it, that he will lead you out and he will end this story in such a way that you think, Thank goodness, you know, the world's still an okay place to be in, you know. And I think that's what I like about Joe, his sense of humanity.
0: Don't you think Michael just described himself?
1: No, God, really. no. There's so much wish fulfilment no, really. in Joe. I mean, he's brighter than I am, he's braver than I no, am. But you know I, I, I my, mother's, my mother once screamed so loudly in a cinema, they stopped the film and turned the, light, turned <laughs> the lights up. That is me. I'm a complete <laughs> coward. But as a writer,
0: <laughs> as a writer, you do that thing of taking us in there and we trust you to bring us to a place of wholeness. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what you described about Joe. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about other people, but I don't... I want the world to be sort of somehow left with, if not hope, at least with a kind of a sense of order. And you always manage that. You always bring us to some kind of home. And I I think think that's what great crime fiction
1: does, though. But I think that's the reason people read it, because you ask the question, why would people want to be frightened or want to to feel this is a suspense? And and in reality, in real life, we know terrible things happen and people get away with doing terrible things. But in most crime fiction, not all of it, most of it, there is a justice is done at the end there is there people are, may well be damaged but there is an end that people feel is more just than all of what often we see in real life mm,
0: mm. well i just want to say that it's a gr- always a great pleasure to be able to ask michael about his work and i feel incredibly privileged that we got to hear something from that wonderful next book and um you know people love to separate things into genres you know there's crime here and there's You know something else here and there's memoir here and there. but it seems to me that you kind of roll them all into one because you write as though the characters are telling a memoir you write literary moments you know you can pace it it's a deep no it's a deep pleasure to read someone who's so at the top of their game in a form that often is sort of down its own track you know so I don't know about you but I feel really lucky that we've got him and that he's got here this year (laughs) <laughs> and he's got a good heart. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.